You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 13 of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-host, Cherry Johnnan and David Howe. Happy New Year's, listeners. We kick off 2020 with an interview from our Boston overlord, Chris Webster. He is the co-founder of the Archaeology Podcast Network, which started back in December of 2014. Most importantly, though, he is the outstanding individual who edits our podcast into something that doesn't want to make your ears bleed. He has often appeared on our show to give us much-needed clarification to concepts and has coached us through pronouncing some tough vocabulary like recordation. Chris is also a Navy veteran, where he served as an aviation electronics technician, and Chris is a professional CRM archaeologist and even a host on three different podcasts on the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Archaeology Show, Archaeotech, and CRM Archaeology. So please join us in welcoming the ringleader of the circus we all know as the Life in Ruins podcast, Chris Webster. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. What's up, man? Yeah, it's uh, it's odd that I've gone five years with uh, with this network, I guess. And this is the first time I've been interviewed on it. <laughs> so there's currently 11 shows on the APN, three of which that you're a, a host on. Mm-hmm. Five years, and this is the first time one of your uh, subordinates has asked you to be on the show. <laughs> yes, and, and we've actually had, I think, five or six or more other shows. I don't even know that have played in that amount of time, and, and then no longer are either on the network or they just stopped podcasting. And none of those bastards interviewed me either. <laughs> 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 God damn it. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, all right. Well, no, this is great to have you and that we could be, you know, to, to have you interviewed. We think it's like extremely important, um, especially that it's um, we're now going into a new year. So we're recording this episode in December, but this will release as our first episode of 2020. But Chris, could you give our uh, listeners a brief description of who you are? A brief description. Well, I can try that. Uh, I think I suppose we'll end segment one with this. Yeah. So when I got out in the, out of high school, I went straight into the United States Navy, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning. I mean, I was in boot camp two weeks after high school, uh, not because of any sort of particular love for the country or the military or anything. <laughs> or really, I just wanted to work on airplanes and travel. So, <laughs> so I and I and college I was college was not really on my radar just because I had crappy guidance counselors in a shitty school system. And like, nobody really told me that I could get loans and stuff. And my parents were like, we're poor. You're not going to college. So, you know, I, the military was kind of looking as a, as a decent option for travel, working with aircraft, doing things like that. So I joined the Navy, became an aviation electronics technician, working on the EA six B prowler um, aircraft, did a Mediterranean cruise on the uh, USS enterprise, which was super cool. And oh, uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I know <laughs> it, it did uh, that ship is actually razor blades. Now they cut it all up a few years ago and they're building a new one because throughout the whole course of the Navy, there's always been an enterprise. It's the one ship that's persisted in name since the very beginning of the Navy. So anyway, uh, I got kind of cold called a long time ago when I was in the Navy, I was on a four year tour with a two year extension because of the schooling I went to. And it was for a flight school in Oklahoma and I always wanted to fly. So I got out of the Navy early, went to a flight school in Oklahoma, got my um, private pilot certificate, my instrument commercial license. And 
I, I liked the education I was getting there, but I wanted a little more. It was more of a tech school for pilots and you didn't get a very good degree out of it. You got great flying, but not a very good degree. So I transferred to the University of North Dakota, which had a great flying program, uh, but it's also a regular liberal arts college. So I went up there and filled all my undergraduate courses with anthropology classes because I also wanted to be an archaeologist. I mean, I, I can remember for as long as I can think, the three things I wanted to be in my life was a commercial airline pilot, an archaeologist, or an astronaut. <laughs> so <laughs> I figured, what the hell, let me take all these classes. And then I just, I don't know, over the course of a few more years of doing aviation training, I kind of lost my desire to be a, an airline pilot just because I, I feel like I was going to be a glorified bus driver. You know, it's good pay and interesting aircraft and travel, but I didn't think the job would be that satisfying. So uh, still not convinced that you could do archaeology or anthropology, whatever that means, as a job. Um, I actually dropped out of the aviation program and I took about two semesters of high-level math classes just because I thought they were fun. And, uh, and photography classes as well, just kind of trying to stay in school. And then at some point, I was just like, fuck it. And I took two semesters, my last two semesters there. I did 18 credits each and took all the upper-level anthro classes after I declared the major. And... Uh, graduated with a, a degree in anthropology from the University of North Dakota. And then there was a hurricane in the fall and a guy, North Dakota? no, not North Dakota in <laughs> New Orleans. <laughs> and, uh, oh, right. Yeah. Um, so the, that I think it was Katrina or something like that. I can't remember which one it was, but, um, one of the guys that I knew the year before was working for, um, RC Goodwin Associates and he, uh, their office was flooded and so was his apartment. So he came back to North Dakota where he was from and I was sitting in the student lounge. We, we, I was actually helping organize, uh, Jane Goodall came in and spoke and I, I was president of the Anthro club the year before. Yeah. And we organized, we raised all this money and got her to North Dakota it was the last state. She'd, it was the last state in the union. She had not visited <laughs> was North Dakota. No surprise there. Um, but anyway, I'm sitting in the student lounge. I've graduated the May before my girlfriend is still there in law school, in law school. And I'm helping do this Jane Goodall thing. And he shows up and he's like, so what are you doing with your life? And I was like, dude, I have actually no idea. And uh, he's like, have you checked shovel bums? And I was like, what the hell is a shovel bum? And because uh, I had, I didn't have a very good education as far as telling me what CRM archaeology was either. And then the rest is history. I checked shovel bums and got a job right there in town while I was, while I was working there. And then my next job was in downtown Miami. And I, and I never looked back. That's the short story. I think I did that in like four minutes. That was very quick. Yeah. <laughs> I'm careful now because David has issues with uh, Jane Goodall, so we needed to clear that subject. <laughs> Shit. As I clarified in the last episode, I don't necessarily have issues with her. I just learned that. Oh my! Yeah. <laughs> She's one of my so idols. This is great. This is this is great. Chris is here because like he knows all of our inside <laughs> jokes because he's in all of our episodes, listening to us and taking down notes right. of what he needs to go back and edit later. It's pretty well, much constant let's not writing. Take away. <laughs> <laughs> let's not take away from chris's thunder here I, to talk about jane goodall i respect jane goodall she's one of my idols and she actually got me really interested in anthropology in general i just did learn in grad school that like the way she did her research weren't necessarily like the the most ethical ways of doing it or the best ways to go about it but mm -hmm. i mean it was the 60s and she changed the field so like fuck it yeah, I, I think that was one of her things, too, is like, yeah, this is the way everybody else has always done something. I, I'm, I'm going to do it differently, right or wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Well, she was one of what? Leaky's Angels is what they called. It was her, Diane Fossey, and... Um, Birote Galdicas. Wow. Yes, the one that studies orangutans. Yeah. The one that I always forget, and the one that no one knows about, because like she just kind of <laughs> does her thing in Borneo yeah. and like does good work, where... 
Jane Goodall is very big in public outreach. And then Diane mm-hmm. Fossey had an untimely um, demise. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a yeah. leaky student. Yep. Yeah. yep. Yeah, Leaky. He liked uh, he liked his ladies. That's for sure. But he also picked he also picked good ones. I mean, he he liked women. That's no that's no surprise. I did a lot of Leaky research when I was in school. I wanted to be a paleoanthropologist. So the Leakies, um, that whole family, I, I really studied them a lot, and and even went to Africa. I did my field school. I guess you could call that. It was an Earth Watch program, one of those things. But it was the only way I could get to Africa, and uh, I worked in. Uh, for three and a half weeks, we were in Olduvai Gorge. We stayed in the leaky camp. The son of the guy who cooked for, for the, the leaky was our cook. Sorry, I just waited for it. <laughs> the roofs were not leaky. No, um, one of them had solar panels on it. No, it's so leaky. we stayed in the leaky le- the leaky camp with the leaky houses and the leaky people <laughs> and the leaky cooks, and uh, it was. <laughs> It was a good time. Yeah, we dug a we dug a trench that dates by the the basalt layers above and below it were one point eight one to two point zero one million years old, and we didn't find shit. And spaceballs comes to mind right now, but we uh, we didn't find we, we found a bu- <laughs> I know that reference <laughs> right. We we found a bunch of uh, like like extinct crocodile and and uh, hippo and stuff like that, but uh, no hominid remains, at least as the the analysis I had seen. So I, I was telling my friend that you did your field school at Old Divide, and she she works at Old Divide currently, and she'll nice. be on her show in, in February. And she actually knows the 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 PI that you worked under. Fidel Masao? He's still around. Yeah, he's still around. Um, he's getting up there. I guess he's in his seventies now. He'd have to be. Yeah. Yeah. So she said that over the summer she was she was dancing with him during uh, some event. But anyway, so, yeah, she thought that was cool that she she knew because I was like, yeah, I did his field school at Earthwatch. She's like, I don't know what that is. And I was like, this is the field <laughs> investigator. And she's like, oh, I know him. Nice. So nice. Yeah. No, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. There, there weren't too many people going out there. Uh, there weren't any programs going out there. There were some going up to uh, Lake Turkana uh, up in Kenya, but there wasn't anybody going to all of our gorge. And this is the only way I could get out there. So I said, fuck it. I'm going to do it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I know. That, I think there's like three teams working there right now. Is one there? from IU, and there's two two Spanish teams. It's good to see they're coming of back. Of course, because it's well, you know, because it's like the paleo mafia. Those three teams don't get along in the slightest, <laughs> so they go go at different times, so they don't have to deal with each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at the time there was a there was a program kicking off from Rutgers too. That was uh, I don't know if they're still doing it, but they called it the OLAP project, the Olduvai Landscape Paleoanthropology project or something like that. I don't know what it was. Basically what they said was the leakies dug vertically. They, they established the vertical time span through old Gorge because it only goes back to just over 2 million years because then you hit solid basalt. And that's why it was kind of played out for a lot of paleoanthropologists because they're like, we need older. So, you know, they're like, they don't need any more homo erectus apparently. So they're just not going to dig there anymore. But the OLAP project was bringing in uh, you know, PhDs from many, many, many different fields. And they were looking at thin slices of time, but across the entire landscape. So they said, well, we know basically what happened here vertically with hominids, but what happened with everything else in this like 50,000 year time span or something like that. And let's just look at that one and see what the, what, what was the geology? What were the lakes and rivers doing? What were the other ants, do, uh, animals doing and plants and, you know, weather and things like that as much as they could find out, which is pretty cool. No, absolutely. And that's like, I think that's those, that still really kind of describes archeological research. Yeah. You're either digging vertically, vertically to do the chronology or you're doing horizontal excavations to, to figure out human behavior during a specific time rather than 
building those chronologies. Right, right. Yeah, so. and the, the leakies were so nuts about just doing the the vertical chronology because that's what everybody was in paleoanthropology was concerned with back then. So it, it's glad to see the that it opened up. Yeah. I mean, I've done two, like, I guess, like, all my work at University of Wyoming at Alm Rock Shelter and Hell Gap, those are all vertical mm-hmm. through multi-component Paleo-Indian sites. And then what I do now on the plains is definitely horizontal, like, one site, one period of time, trying to find all the houses and blah, 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 and the trash pits. So, yeah, no, I totally get it. And that's totally fascinating. God, <laughs> I was hoping your your background would take a little longer. You really killed that. Um, you're, you were Alpha Tango, you said? Yes. You guys like, do you have MOSs in the Navy? I can't remember. Or is it just like we don't call them MOSs. Everybody else does. Um, it was just a rate, basically a rating or a rate. Yeah. It's AT. Like e- E9. Eight. Well, so that's the rank. So I was an AT, oh. which is an avionics technician um, or an aviation electronics technician. And my rank when I got out was technically an E5. Uh, I made E5 like E5. right before I got out. So nice. Did yeah. any of that aviation electronics convert you to doing podcast electronics? Like what's that? Like? Uh, I think no, uh, is the short <laughs> answer, but next question. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think it helped in, in that it, it helped to, I guess it, it's not really even the avionics. It's more the troubleshooting background that I got in the Navy. You know, I was always kind of interested in mechanical things and how stuff works, but when you get in and you're handed these, you know, top secret schematics to a highly complex airplane and they say, Hey, we have a, a, a box that's not working in the back seat, figure it out. And you basically got, you know, a very short period of time because we only had four aircraft and we had to get them up. You know, if they were down for maintenance, they had to get up soon. And it was basically, let's sit here and do some troubleshooting. And we'd look at the, all the schematics and find the boxes and swap boxes out and then go look, start looking at the wires and the cables and doing those things. Yeah. So I think the troubleshooting aspect of it has helped me in many aspects of my life, not just podcasting because podcasting for sure, I guess is comes from that because there's so many components to some of this stuff and, and not a day goes by practically where at my office at the Reno collective, I help set up the podcast studio and we've got more and more people just using the podcast studio as members and everybody comes by my desk. I mean, it's happened three times today. And they come by my desk saying, oh, I can't figure this out or I can't figure this out. And I realize how bad people's troubleshooting skills really are. Like I go down there and the highly bright red mute button is on on the <laughs> mic. And yeah. they're like, I can't hear anything. It's right there. <laughs> it's next to the volume button. <laughs> so just huh. just the ability to, to do that, I think that's helped in not only podcasting, but um, just, just all around in my life, being able to, you know, I guess, troubleshoot and figure stuff out like that. Yeah. So how, how long of a uh, gap did you have between being in the Navy and being in uh, archeology span slash school? Uh, I guess I would say about five years, uh, a little about, about five and a half years or so. I got out in on Christmas Eve of 1997 and, wow. uh, I was accepted into that school as partner, a Spartan school of aeronautics in Oklahoma, but it wasn't starting until June. So in the meantime, I went to, uh, I was up in Seattle area and I went to, a. Um, I guess a temp agency for like tech jobs because I needed something for six months and they put me with a company called Space Labs Medical, which was not very fun to work at, but is super cool to have on your resume (laughs) because it's called Space Labs Medical. And uh, yeah, so basically all I was doing there was um, they had these uh, patient monitoring systems. You can still see them in hospitals. I don't know if they're still Space Labs, but somebody's doing them. But it's basically these modules that plug into these um, monitoring systems and 
the modules determine what you're recording. So they had like neonatal modules and heart rate, heart rate modules and pulse ox modules and all kinds of different things. And we had to test those in the quality assurance department and run through a series of computer tests, make sure they, they work just fine. And then, you know, put them back on the shelf. So, yeah. so I did that for six months. And then when I went to Spartan, I was at Spartan for about, I guess a year and a half before I transferred to UND. And then I got out of UND at 2005 and June of 2005 or May, whatever it was. And I had my first CRM archaeology project by, I guess it was the end of October, 2005, right after Old wow. Okay, yeah. cool. So your transition wasn't like too rough, I guess. Or- no, well, it was mentally because when I got out of school, you know, I basically had nowhere I really needed or wanted to go. Um, I was with yeah. my girlfriend at the time. She still had semesters to go, but we decided to go back to um, Washington state where my parents are just to get out of North Dakota. She's from North Dakota and we just wanted to go back there for the summer. She had to come back for her semester, her last semester at UND in law school. But we went back there and I for like a couple of months, I was working with my brother who worked for his father-in-law at this like luxury home remodel company that he owned. So I was basically like, you know, the, the garbage boy and the, the sanding boy and the fucking whatever else they needed done. And it was horrific. And I hated every minute of it. My brother's like, Oh, you'll be good at this because this is where I started. And, and he became like a finished carpenter doing that. Now he's a firefighter. Apparently he didn't like it that much either. The bastard. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, we went, uh, I did that for a few months, just not really knowing what I was going to do. And it was going to Oldify Gorge, saving up that money because it cost about $6,000 to do that trip. But going to Oldify Gorge and doing that, that really jump-started my my love for anthropology and archaeology again. And then that tip about shovel bumps changed everything. My path, that my path was different. So Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, I guess... Speaking of finding your path, let's get into the APN and how you sign that, uh, I guess, next session. And welcome back to the second session of a Life in Ruins podcast, episode three. We're here with our guest and producer. Episode Derek, three. Episode 13. Yeah, that one. <laughs> one three with our guest and producer, Chris Webster. So for our listeners, the whole process of starting a Life in Ruins started back in January when I was interviewed for... Heritage Voices, and I asked Jessica how she got hooked up with the podcast. She introduced me to Chris, and we started this whole process, which was like months of getting kind of the show together, what we wanted to do. And we hadn't officially met you, but we were planning on meeting you at the essays in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. But before we did that, we were at lunch, and we were actually talking to Arena Bocci, who we interviewed um, earlier and at the table next to us was an, was oh, an individual. Oh, yeah, shit, I forgot about that. <laughs> there, there, was a, there was an individual, and I was like, is that is that Chris Webster? And all we and know I, you from I, is the little circle picture of you on your Gmail. So I was like, right. maybe that's him? So we're like trying to look at it, and we're like looking at this guy, and he, he sees us looking at him. <laughs> and, and we're like trying to talk to Arita about being a, a guest on the show that hasn't even come out yet. And I'm like, I think, I think that's Chris Webster. So I get up, I walk over to him and I'm like, Hey, are you Chris Webster? And he's like, no, I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, Oh, sorry. And I tried to get a beer, but apparently actually, cause I have such a wide ass. I just like hit his chair and like bumped him as I walked away. <laughs> nice. Put that like a hundred years ago in Albuquerque. It'd be like, Chris Webster, I'm calling you out. And he's like, I'm not Chris Webster. <laughs> then you just knock his chair and he spits into his spittoon. 
<laughs> oh my god. It was it was a debacle. But then we finally we finally met you like right after it was like the Me Too thing had just happened. Yeah. Like that's when we first met you and then we did that episode that show for your that episode for your show. Yep. Yeah. So nice. that was like our first actual meeting with you. And that was before I think our first episode's what appeared in May? Uh so. late April, I think, yeah. Yeah. It yeah, was so like I think it was right later. after. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, fun times. So you were a squid. Uh yep. and then you well, uh well, you're 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 doing the navy stuff. And then you went to uh, not Kubi four. Would you go to uh, Old Divide Gorge? Old Divide Gorge. Uh, and then you, uh, what? So then there to podcast. Did you dig one up? Did you dig up a mic? <laughs> <laughs> that was a great question, by the way, David. Um, so <laughs> anyway, <laughs> straight, straight to the I point. <laughs> I can't talk. <laughs> right, right. No, so I, I guess. It was a. Uh, I'll go back a little farther than that because uh, I think the the kickoff of all this all this stuff was really back to honestly my very first project, which was in Minnesota uh, while I was in Grand Forks, North Dakota. I got that first project that was right there, and I go out there and I actually this story is I've told this on my uh, Sierra Mark podcast and it's in my book. And I, I was sitting there. What's I up? was paired up. You I have was, a book? Yes, I do. All right, let's get yeah. to that too. All right. Yeah, you can Google it in the meantime. Uh, it's on Amazon. Field Archaeologist Survival Guide. All right. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sitting on this project. It's an excavation. And interesting fact, my first, I think, two or three years in CRM, all phase three excavations by luck of the draw. I didn't even know what survey was. I had no idea. Didn't know what a shovel test was. Never done pedestrian survey. All phase three excavations. It was insane. Anyway, I'm sitting on this project in Minnesota. It was an ongoing project and I was brought on uh, just as they were they were all there. And uh, and I I worked in Oldify Gorge. That was my only field experience. And you know what? We didn't screen. Uh, we did a whole bunch of other stuff, but we had locals to screen. I hate to admit it, but it was basically like 1915 over there. And we had other people doing all the hard work. And we were basically sitting near the screen, like going through it and seeing if there's anything good in there. But all the heavy shaking and pickaxing and all that stuff was done by the locals. So I didn't know how to use a regular standing shaker screen. I'd literally never seen it done. And I'm standing there. I'm paired up with somebody and I'm supposed to screen this dirt and the buckets are piling up because we're just sitting there talking. And I actually don't know what to do. <laughs> like, I, like, I didn't want to ask. And I waited until somebody went up to the back dirt it's pile. It's like my with worst their buckets. nightmare. <laughs> right? <laughs> I waited until somebody <laughs> went up to the back dirt pile and watched them pour this dirt in the screen and then how they lifted it up. And then I, and then I went and did it. And then after that, I mean, you can basically teach a monkey to look for stuff in a screen. So I was, I mean, that part was relatively simple, but just pulling up the screen, like I didn't know how to do that. I saw it. And I was like, how do you do these things? And it made me think just as I ended that, that project only lasted about three weeks because we got like 10 inches of snow and that when you get snow in the end of like no, early November in North Dakota, it just never goes away. So they shut the project down yeah. and that's when I went to Miami. But anyway, I was starting to think just on that project with that and a few other things. I mean, we found FCR in uh, one of the first days that I was there. Somebody found some FCR and there was it's instantly a debate. And FCR stands for firecrack <laughs> rock. Yes. And there was instantly a debate on which actual letters to use. Is it fire affected rock? Is it fire cracked rock? Is it, you know, thermally altered? Oh my God. So <laughs> there was this debate amongst all these people who had been doing CRM for years already. And they didn't even know what the hell they were talking about. And I, I kept thinking, man, there are so many things 
that you're just not taught in college and you're not taught really that well on the job. And there's all, and there's all these differing opinions and things like that. So I already started mentally kind of putting together, I guess, a resource list of things that I would like to see, but didn't have the ability or qualifications to write because I didn't know what the hell I was talking about either. And I've been doing this job for six months, but I just kept kind of <laughs> leaving that stuff in the back of my head. And it was several years later, I started writing a blog and it's the, uh, the blog was called random acts of science and it's on my dig tech, uh, website. And I started writing that blog and I started writing it relatively consistently. And I, I started a series called the shovel bums guide series, which did lead to the book, which we can talk about later. But then, uh, at some point after being a podcast listener, I thought I want a different format for this. I want a different medium for this. And there's, there's not enough stuff related to CRM archeology span out there. So I wanted like a news show about CRM. So I started looking into it. I have a MacBook pro or I did at the time. Well, I still do now, but I had an older one back then and I had GarageBand on it. And I went down to the radio shack by my house and picked up a $60 microphone, um, which <laughs> was bad. <laughs> it was a bad I microphone. forgot about radio shack. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, this was like, this was like a year before they all closed. And, uh, and I, I bought this crappy microphone and I had it sitting on a little stand stacked up on books in front of me. And I, and I had a Google news alert set up for archeology span and like, uh, like Shippo and CRM and some other things and uh, section 106, stuff like that, because I was trying to find projects that were, or archeological sites that were discovered as a result of some sort of, you know, 106 action or some sort of, you know, CRM archeology span thing. And then I, weekly for a year, I would just basically read these Google news stories. It was the most boring, like stab yourself in the fucking ears thing that you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> and it was so bad. Like I there was no commentary and I was just like reading them. Right. And you can go try to find them too, but I've wiped them from the internet. So they don't exist. But the show that I wanted was really more of a discussion style show. And so over the course of doing that podcast and I was still doing my blog at the time, I met some, other people at conferences and things like that, that were on Twitter had blogs and I, and I reached out to a few of them. Um, this is all after a conversation with my friend, Bill White, who I met through uh, Twitter and blogging and going to conferences. And he encouraged me to start the, uh, CRM archeology span podcast. And he was one of the original hosts and is still with us. And then we brought, um, Doug rocks McQueen on from Scotland. Actually, he's from New Mexico, a CRM archeologist from New Mexico, but he was getting his um, PhD in Scotland at the time. Wait, are those the two guys that we met at SAAs? Yes. Yeah, they were both there. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah, they've been on the show ever since. And then Stephen Wagner, uh, who was in Wisconsin, is now in Calgary. And then Russell Ellen Willems, who kind of fell off the face of the earth a few years ago. So I don't know what he's doing. And uh, and then a few of the other hosts have kind of come and gone. Um, we've had other people come in and some people leave. Uh, Sarah Head started on the Sierra Mark podcast. And then when we started the APN, uh, I encouraged her actually to split off uh, and and take her Archie fantasies blog and turn it into the archaeological fantasies podcast and, and brought Ken Fader on as her co-host. So, um, so yeah, the, the, the shitty weekly news podcast became the CRM archaeology podcast, which was a panel style show that we've done every two weeks for the last eight years or so. And I think we just recorded episode 179 or something. Um, but every two weeks we record that thing. And at some point, just from doing that show and, and me trying to jam in interviews that really just didn't fit there, but it was the only show I had and trying to say, well, this is kind of related to archaeology. Let's interview this person. Um, I started thinking, man, I really just need to start another podcast, but I'm kind of a go big or go home kind of person. And I'm like, if I put together this framework, 
for starting another podcast, that means I can start more podcasts, but I don't want to host all these. So why don't I just call it a network and I'll bring other people in to do it. And I needed somebody to help think these things through. So I found somebody else that was doing a podcast and that was uh, Tristan Boyle. We can get, uh, and uh, is Tristan on right now? I think he might be. Is anybody... <laughs> oh, Tristan Boyle here. Tristan Boyle here. <laughs> I thought he was. Yeah, as, we're wrapping up the, as we're wrapping up the field season, and we need time to take our reports. He's also a yes. pirate. He's also exactly. <laughs> Nine podcasters go in the water. Oh my Five god! Come out. <laughs> I hope you yes. listen to this at some point. <laughs> So yeah, Tristan, I found him. He was doing the Anarchaeologist podcast. Uh, he had just kind of started it. A young young guy too at the time. And then I brought him on and we started the APN and started looking at, you know, bringing other people on. And immediately, Doug and Russell from the Sierra podcast spun off the Archaeotech podcast. But they weren't very good at keeping it going. So the Archaeotech podcast has had a tumultuous history with hosts. But now my current co-host, Paul Zimmerman, from he lives in Manhattan. Uh, we've been keeping it going for a little over two years now. And then they split off the uh, Archie Fantasies podcast. Sierra Mark podcast still existed. Brought in Tristan's podcast, the Anarchaeologist podcast, and I don't know, a couple others. So kind of goes from there. It uh, It just we just kept bringing people in. And every time somebody would approach me and say, Hey, uh, you should do a podcast about this. And I was like, well, are you the expert in this? Do you know what you're talking about? It's like, yeah. Okay. Then you do the podcast in this. And then I teach them how, which actually spun off a whole other business for me, but we can talk about that later. Interesting. So when I first approached you about this podcast and what we wanted to do, what was your like initial reaction? Okay, to be honest, my initial reaction was, fuck me, more podcasts to edit. But <laughs> right after that. I wondered. <laughs> but shut, see up, the, <laughs> shut up, Carlton. But see, the thing is, I you know, I would I would hate and love all at the same time if 10 more podcasts started on the APN because it would be a, so much more work for me because um, I edit all of these shows. And but then I love just bringing this content in. So yeah. Initially, my reaction is always, damn it, more shit to do. But I, I loved the idea of having it because I feel like we've needed, how do I say it? Less serious podcasts on the APN. Um, you guys talk about, <laughs> I try to say that in a nice way. <laughs> there's, there's good Not content. <laughs> You guys have great content and you do good interviews. Um, I mean, I cut out the 45 seconds of silence when somebody's trying to figure out how to speak. So I make it a good interview. But <laughs> what the you public do. hears is a great interview that's also entertaining. And it's clear to me that you guys get along well. You've known each other for a long time. You can you can, uh, you know, really play off each other, each other well. And I've, I've told more than a few people since you guys started that I wish we had more shows like this on the APN. I have always wanted the CRM archaeology podcast to be like that. But I think the problem is we're all, we're not, I, would, I don't want to say we're all like best friends. We've known each other for like eight years, but we've rarely been in the same room together. You know, we haven't like hung out together and done those sorts of things. So when we do this podcast, they all mute their microphones when they're not speaking and I have to bring them in. And sometimes we have a nice little interchange. Um, but it's really, it's not really the, the, the kind of dialogue that I've always been kind of striving for. And you guys hit that right out of the gate. So I can give a, I can give a recommendation for that. Um, you put them in a hotel in Albuquerque and then proceed <laughs> to get extremely drunk and puke off the balcony. That's a, that's that a good way good. to coalesce this, this kind of thing. It's just yeah. a suggestion, nothing specific. 
when I'm feeling blue, I go to those Snapchats that are saved in my phone to give me, <laughs> to give me, because like I've, I've actually only seen Connor in person like six times. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. It's yeah, mostly, yeah. yeah, it's mostly me and David. Like I have stories with David, like the fucking dent that's still in the back of my Fiesta when he tried to be a badass and whip his fucking Jeep out of his house. <laughs> nope. And, no badass uh, intended. <laughs> just, just backed into your car. <laughs> Plain and simple. <laughs> Which was parked horizontally behind my giant Jeep, which I should have saw. Right. Anyway. But uh, I, I think like I think it helps that we're in a group chat. We talk daily. And I think, yeah. Yeah, was it like three days ago? David's like, oh, we've never, this is the first time we've gone without talking all day. But I think that just kind of, just kind of helps. But it does. Uh, this has been, it's been a lot of fun to do this and to have your support. Like it's been pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. We couldn't do it without you, man. I mean, yeah, a hundred, hundred percent on that. Uh, Carlton had asked me multiple times in grad school if I wanted to do a podcast, and I was like, mm-hmm. first off, no offense to you, Carlton, I was like, who the fuck is this guy? No. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, like, I was like, oh, that's just like so much work, and I'm trying to like write stuff, and like, mm-hmm. it, you got to like edit and cut and everything, and I was like, this will never be a thing. And then Carlton was like, I just emailed like the head producer of the APN, which I'd never heard of. And I was like, oh, shit. And then <laughs> you were like, yeah, you guys have a podcast. And I was like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and then we were like, I think we asked Chris Rowe and we asked Connor and Connor was like, hell yeah, I'll do it. So, Well, the hardest part is getting past uh, about 10 episodes or so. Uh, I know that from experience. And it's once you get once you get into the groove and you get past that and you kind of get used to you get used to doing it, you get it. You get it on a schedule, which we didn't really have at first, which is understandable. Nobody does. Uh, But now we're kind of in a groove. You know, we're recording on Mondays. And once you get that and it just becomes part of your existence and you and you plan around it, then it's easy to just keep it going. And it's and it's fun. You know, and the the nice thing is you guys can do episodes like you started doing a month ago or so uh, where it's just the three of you, because all three of you have enough experiences and. Um, you know, work history and things like that and, and just camaraderie amongst each other that you can do a show with just the three of you. And that says a lot too. Yeah. We're also partly ridiculous, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little partly. bit of a uh, partly. Uh, okay. Holy, holy, and utterly <laughs> ridiculous people who like talking and have a good time. That's right. We have our Monday meetings where we like plan out the episodes and Connor, do you want to, do you want to tell the audience how those go? <laughs> uh we start we start off you know good we're gonna have like a focused meeting um and then uh, me and carlton get talking about things um and then you know david disappears for 20 to 30 minutes at a time and pops back up and like huh <laughs> it's, it's, all while sitting right there and listening just, <laughs> right, yeah. right. Like, wait what <laughs> so nice. it's a it's a constant uh check in with David to keep him there. And then he <laughs> brings up brilliant ideas that he's been simmering on in a different land. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's fun. I mean, we did it, we did some behind the scenes stuff on our Instagram. So if you haven't looked at it, mm-hmm. uh, but go look at it. It's, it's ridiculous because we're ridiculous humans. Um, and on that nice. ridiculous and crazy note, uh, let's go to, go to the break. Tristan Bile here. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to episode 13, not three, Carlton. 
13 of the Life in Ruins podcast. We're talking to Chris Webster, the founder, like one of the co-founders of the APN and our editor. And because this is going to come out right, right as uh, 2020 begins, I wanted to ask you, where do you kind of see the APN going in the future? Well, as we start year six, uh, as we started just this month, I think I think it's time uh, for the APN to really become self-sustaining um, because we, my goal with the APN all along has not necessarily been to continue to produce different podcasts. I mean, that's kind of a byproduct of what we do. But the real goal is to build a solid back catalog, uh, a searchable back catalog. If you go on the main page of the APN uh, on our website at arcpodnet.com and you hit search, chances are you can search for almost any word or phrase and a podcast of our over 3000 podcast episodes that have been submitted uh, in the last about seven or eight years, because it includes pre APN stuff as well. You'll find something. And, and the, the whole point has been to create an archeological and educational resource for all this stuff. So I think as we've built that up, it's now time because I, I want to have more shows. But to be honest, I'm super busy. Everybody connected with the APN is super busy. And for us to be able to do that, we need to bring in money so we can hire people to do the stuff that keeps the show going. And one of those things is editing. My biggest thing is I need to hire an editor. And an editor is going to cost about $2,000 to $2,500 a month at our current show production rate. And it just goes up from there if we do more shows. So to that end, I, I'm starting with advertising. Um, we've been we changed our platform. You guys were the first podcast to come on the new hosting platform of Megaphone. And that new hosting platform allows us to basically monitor per download how an ad performance is going. So if somebody says, I want to buy 5,000 downloads, it's no longer by the month. They buy it by the download and they say... I want 5,000 downloads. Right now, Simon Fraser University is getting 10,000 downloads. And I just looked yesterday and they were at like 5,312 or something like that. That's an amazing metric to have. And we can sell that with our ad spaces that you guys hear right before we came back in from the, the break. That's what keeps the lights on over here and keeps everything going. So just a couple of days ago, I interviewed somebody from um, who's a graduate of the University of Nevada, Reno, and because she's local here and she was recommended to me uh, to kind of be an intern for advertising. I'm still going to pay her. She's going to get paid like a base salary. That's pretty low, to be honest. And I told her this. She has another job, which is nice. I was like, if this is your only thing, this conversation's over right now. But <laughs> yeah, so, you know, she'll get a, a, a small like a monthly thing just to keep her going, but then she'll get 30% of the ad revenue that she brings in. And that's the commission that she's going to make, but she's got an advertising background. Um, and, but she's young enough and new enough to kind of invent this as she goes and, and, and be creative with it. But advertising is almost as much work as editing because the advertising never ends. You know, if we tell somebody, Hey, here's 10,000 downloads, uh, you know, thanks for the money. We'll keep us going. But when that 10,000 downloads is up, we need somebody right behind them with 10,000 more downloads and 10,000 more downloads just to keep the lights on over here and to keep it all going. So I think I'd like to see by the end of 2020, the APN in somewhat of a self-sustaining mode. Um, Cause other people have told me too, well, what if somebody just donates, you know, $30,000 to the APN? I was like, well, that's great. We would spend it. But I would probably not spend it on the things you think I would spend it on. I would spend it on hiring people who know what the hell they're doing that can help us become self-sustaining. I mean, it'd be easy to say, oh, great, I can hire an editor for the next 15 months if I got $30,000 or something like that. But that would be a stupid move. I would need to hire somebody who's in social media and marketing and somebody who's in advertising to do those things that make us self-sustaining. And the two things that make us self-sustaining are advertising and members. 
And uh, I don't know which one is better to focus on. So I'm starting with advertising. Well, it's it's hard because um, uh, I don't think if you're an archaeologist, you usually don't have this kind of marketing background as well because right. archaeology in reality doesn't pay that well. So if you're going to do marketing, you might as well go full in and do marketing. You know, I yeah. think it's I think you see that in other professions where you have folks who do marketing. I mean, D- David does pretty good social media stuff, but that's super rare in archaeology. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's they're definitely out there, but it seems like the intersection of marketing and archaeology has never really been there. Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. And it's uh, it's actually something we talked about on the Sierra Mark podcast not too long ago was, you know, what are those skills that you need to become a, a, a great like company owner and a leader? And those skills are not taught anywhere in our chain of education. <laughs> you know, it's no. just not stuff that we get. <laughs> not even a little I bit. I was digging yeah. in the middle of the desert uh, when I worked for SWCA mm-hmm. and I was talking to a bunch of guys and I was like, has just, you know, when you're doing a shovel test that's leading to nowhere and you're like, what the fuck am I doing with my life <laughs> thought? And I was right. like, has anyone ever just gone and got an MBA before? And then he was like, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Like, you just get an MBA and run like a CRM company or run something like, like what you're doing. It, it just had not crossed anyone's mind. Yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe I should do that. I haven't. <laughs> so, I don't know. But, well, it's like one of those things. My younger brother is looking into finally getting into um, <clears throat> going to college. And he wants to be a wildlife ecologist. And one of the things I told him was like, dude, you should minor in marketing. And he was like, I don't, why the fuck would I minor in marketing? And I was like, because honestly, I wish I had, because regardless, it doesn't matter what field you go into. Honestly, you need to be able to market your research, market yourself and be able to make yourself, you know, marketable. Mm hmm to the job market. So yeah, Carlton, you, you hit it on the head right there because that's the one thing that I think we're leading into as a society is we're no longer to the point where we're like, you know, you're a company man with GE or something like that, right? Like you're always marketing yourself and, and nowhere is that true more than CRM archaeology. You might work for another company, but you're marketing yourself. You you yourself are the brand that's online. The one that people say, oh, that guy's a douchebag or that guy's cool to work for or work with. And that's going to stick with you because of social media. And if you don't know how to market yourself and 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 curate your own brand, and it doesn't matter what you're in, if you want to go into wildlife ecology, that's fine. But the minute you, you know, the contract is over for whatever job you're doing, you've got to sell yourself again. And, and it would help to have a presence online and maybe you write a blog, maybe you do have a podcast, maybe you do something else, but all that goes towards your brand. And I don't think enough people pay attention to that. So you're saying that David Ian Howe.com or how and why productions on YouTube or ethnosynology on Instagram or <laughs> LA Nerds podcast on Twitter is a good idea to have. I think it is. Maybe put them all under one name. Okay, cool. Uh, speaking of ethnosynology is if you guys ever had a problem with downloads, if you ever downloaded too much stuff to your underpants, this podcast is brought to me under you. Yeah, <laughs> oh, my God. I'm just trying it out. Just trying it out. Oh, uh, God, please let us do ads for the APA. Yeah. We would make them so amusing. Yeah, maybe I'll have you guys do the uh, RPA ad if they don't record it themselves. <laughs> did yeah, did I, I mention the that. RPA is going to be advertising on this uh, network? Ooh, and that's the present. Are they limping that hard? <laughs> You know, what What does RPA stand for, Chris? Uh, I could give you a clever answer, but register professional archaeologists. Wow. <laughs> There's a list out there like that? Apparently there is. Yep. Are you an RPA, Connor? 
It's not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> uh, recently revoked after that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Nice. How long does it take to be an RPA? Like, I, I think I need to do that. Don't you? Is that you something that archaeologists like still need to do? Uh, you know what? It, we, we can have the RPA discussion um, because it's uh, I think it's becoming a little more important now that they've finally got off their ass and made the other level of registered archaeologist because it's uh, there goes. the ad. <laughs> Hey, they know it. I just talked to the president, uh, Chris Dora, last week uh, about this ad. And, and I've interviewed on the podcast before and I've interviewed the past two presidents before that as well. Uh, and I'm going to interview the next president. Um, it, Connor, you want to join me on that interview? Because he's going to be at the SHAs. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we can talk about the RPA because I don't hold back with them either. And I and I told him that about doing this ad. I was like, we're going to have conversations about the RPA probably all through 2020 because of how things are possibly changing. And while the RPA has been, have really has been seen as just letters behind your name and somewhat of a joke in the past, I think the reality is it's the only unifying thing that we have as archaeologists besides the other conferences, right? Um, like you can be a member of the SAA or a member of the AAA or, you know, SHA, whatever you want to be. But all those are members of the RPA. They're partnering organizations with the RPA. And, and in good or bad, the RPA is the only thing we have that currently exists that has a long history that has that going for it. And the more people we can get in there, the more things we might be able to do with it and make it more functional. You know what I mean? Uh, If we get, that's a really good point. So we can, we can laugh about it all we want now, but it's only because we've never given it any sort of credit or um, I guess worthiness, you know what I mean? But now that we can bring more people into it, then I think we can make it, we as a group, collective group can make it actually mean something. So before before yeah. that, um, you, all you had to do um, to be in the RPA, um, there was two options, which are which was really only one option, where you um, you get a master's degree um, in anthropology, you upload your thesis, and you're an RPA. So that's kind of where this like whole like it's mm-hmm. a joke thing it's because you don't really. Oh, I have two two letters after my name. Cool. Now I'm a <laughs> professional. Um, but there was also another option, which involved like a heavy screening of people who don't have an MA, but they had done a lot of field work, um, which is normal. A lot of field techs don't have MAs. Um, Mm -hmm. But now it's like you're saying is it's becoming more accessible because they have that. What is it? Registered professional as registered archaeologist, registered archaeologist, which is is geared towards more those folks and and an easier way to be more inclusive to a, a bunch of field people. Well, not not only that, because the other major complaint about the RPA was you could be in, you know, like I got my RPA, what was it? When I got my master's degree it was in 2010 or something like that. And I signed up for it. Uh, so I've just been paying the 35 bucks or 45 bucks a year, whatever it is, which I've got to do now for the end of this year, ever since then. But literally nobody has asked to see anything about my qualifications. Like I rarely do field work anymore. I mean, I still do field work and I'm still on contracts and stuff, but I'm focusing more on the APN and doing other things. Does that still make me RPA? I don't know because nobody cares, right? And and as long as I keep paying my dues, I can still keep become being an RPA. And that has been one of the big complaints about it. But now the full RPA and the RA level are both going to require, and I don't know if this starts in 2020 or 2021, I can't remember, but um, you're required to get eight hours of continuing education that's been approved by the RPA. Now, for most people, that means just go to a conference, an RPA sponsored conference, which is all four of the big ones. So if you do that, you've covered your requirement. But if you don't go to any conferences, you have to do eight hours of continuing education before you can um, renew. So that adds a little bit more credibility to it. 
I, I will say that working, uh, especially not directly with archaeologists all day, but with like the public for like a full-time job, mm-hmm. um, that's as much as I'll say, <laughs> uh, when I meet people that I have to interact with and network with around town and I hand them a business card that says David and Howe MA, RPA, mm-hmm. it like MA doesn't, like I could have an MA in, you know, culinary right. science and be an artifacts manager, but like I could when I have the RPA on there, it says professional archaeologist. So like to someone who's not an archaeologist, it does look really mm-hmm. cool. And I like, I think it's kind of cool to have another thing on there too, but. Yeah. And see, all we have to do is make that worth something within our own field. Cause you're right outside of the field of archaeology, RPA does mean something because every other field out there has some sort of specialty or certification or ongoing thing. Right. Uh, I mean, look at unions and all that other stuff and, 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 and trade schools and, and all those things. Engineers. They all have something. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. They all have something. So it means something outside of our field. It's just we're so self-deprecating as a group that we don't give a shit about it. And we're like, oh, you know, fuck this. And I and I have a feeling, let's be honest, uh, I don't want to alienate anybody here, but a lot of times it's the people who can't be in the RPA. They're the ones saying that. And and that barrier, I think, now has been broken down. And then hopefully that'll start to change and we can all raise up because of it. I don't know. And also, like, archaeologists are not the most business-oriented, right. in most cases, or even, like, socially-oriented <laughs> people. Like, you know, there's a lot of people. It's mostly made up of people that have never been in leadership roles before get these things, and it's, it's like, weird mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I did, the, I did the fraternity thing, and I'm a pretty goddamn social guy, <laughs> if people haven't realized that. I think me, David, and Connor are all, all that same – kind of you know person so to us it's like to me especially seeing people i'm like you definitely should not be in a leadership role (laughs) in any way shape or form because you don't know how to act or or really how to operate and i think archaeology in general just suffers from that because i mean you kind of have to be fucking weird to want to dig in the dirt for most of your life and deal with dead people and and yeah yeah. i think just to be an archaeologist you have to be fucking weird person (laughs) That's true. And like you said, archaeologists as a as a group of people who gravitate to this field are, I mean, to be honest, we tend to be more um, loners than joiners. You know what I mean? Unless somebody says it's happy hour and then we all show up. But it's it's more yeah. we, we do live kind of a more solitary life until, you know, it's like project to project. But then you go back into your hotel room by yourself and it's just uh, um that's not conducive to, you know, unions or groups. Like a fucking right? animal. <laughs> Crawl back into your den Basically. at night. <laughs> Ever-changing den. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. Definitely, it's an eclectic group of people, mm-hmm. for sure. And like we all, I have noticed that anywhere I go or any other archaeologists, it's like we're all socially awkward in a way, but also extremely extroverted in other ways. Like if you get talking about something that we like. Yeah. Um, but like I can go to an archaeology conference and immediately like know the types of people who I'm interacting <laughs> with. And I'm like, okay, this is home. <laughs> yeah. Dude, when I, when I met Joe Watkins for the first time at this past SAAs, like who's the, who's the president of the SAAs now, I like introduced myself because he's, he's an indigenous archaeologist and someone I look up to. And I was like, oh, hello, uh, Joe, this is, this is who I am, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, you're a PhD student at Colorado. Who's your advisor? And I was like, you know, I would tell him and then he just like made this really weird comment Mm. where I had nowhere else to go with it. We just kind of stand there looking at each (laughs) other. And I was just like, 
uh, nice to meet you, Joe. I'm going to uh, later and just like kind of awkwardly like yeah. went away because I was just like, God damn, is that dude? Yeah. <laughs> like that was a weird conversation to have. Uh, Chris, yeah, is, your, you. um, is your uh, significant other uh, an archaeologist as well or, or in a different profession? If you mind, don't mind letting, letting, letting that out of the bag. No, the answer to that question is yes and no, um, because I actually met her. I met her on my very first project, but it's only for like a day because she was on another crew that was combined with ours. And then we got shut down for snow. Uh, but then weirdly, we both ended up in Miami on that next like seven month long um, excavation that was in downtown Miami. And that's where we got to know each other. And then uh, I went off after that project ended and so did she. And we kind of parted ways for a little while, but stayed in contact. And then I don't know, it was... Uh, uh, sometime in the fall, I guess, that we started dating. I moved down to South Carolina. She had a job there and they needed people. And she was permanent, actually. She was working in the lab and they needed people for a project. And she called me down because I was finishing up in, um, uh, where the hell was I? Vermont. And uh, so I went down there and I guess the rest is history. Uh, we we started shovel bumming together and moved around and and we we lived in our um, Toyota Forerunner. We both sold both our cars and lived in our Forerunner during the year of, I think, 2008 or something like that just so we could move to the West coast wow. because we were tired of East coast archeology. span But the only way to get to the West coast was to basically work your way across. So <laughs> we just got rid of everything and lived in the vehicle and hotel rooms and camping and worked our way across to the, to the West coast. Um, and then started here and then we got married. I think, uh, Oh, she's going to kill me. I don't know if she can hear me or not. If she's even here. I, I know say. we got married in like 2000, <laughs> 11, 12, <laughs> I don't know, uh, <laughs> uh, in Lake Tahoe. And actually a few years ago, right around then actually is when she got out of archeology. span Um, she was always doing every time we were on a project and we were, we were in the vehicles heading out to the, heading out to where we were surveying or whatever we were doing. She was always knitting. She picked that up from her grandmother and she just loved it. And she started designing her own stuff. And now she works for a major um, international retailer uh, that's right here out of Reno, but also does her own uh, hand designed. Uh, she designs her own knitting patterns and, and, and dyes her own yarn and sells all that online and does all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but she's kind of gotten back in. Yeah. She's kind of gotten back into archeology span uh, in the last uh, six months or so because her and a friend of hers, who's not an archeologist, started a podcast on the APN called historical yarns and it's a seasonal podcast. I was about to say, <laughs> I was like, this sounds like, I was like, Oh, does she? Host yeah. Okay. Damn. Yeah. Right. So they, they host a podcast that's going to come out four times a year. It's six episodes. They sell a pattern along with it. And mm. it's about mm. a 30 minute episode. And the first 15 minutes is about the history of whatever technique they're focusing on that season. And then the last 15 minutes after the break, is about the pattern that's associated with that um, season. So it's a very different thing that we've ever done before. And uh, and it's it's exciting to see it on there. It'll be back out in February if all goes to plan. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, yeah. So, I was just yeah. going to say, my, uh, we'll to my significant other is a nurse. And it's pretty interesting having her to come hang out with archaeologists, yeah. going back to what we were talking with, because they're like, you guys are just kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> painfully, painfully true. But that's awesome. Yes. Well, she keeps her like her clients alive. Ours are, uh, ours are ours already are dead. dead. Yeah. So <laughs> fundamentally different. <laughs> uh, you, so this is an odd question, but like you have, don't you have like a boat or something on Lake, Ta- Lake Tahoe? Well, uh, funny you should say that, Carlton. Um, I do have a boat, but it's not on Lake Tahoe anymore because Lake Tahoe is starting to freeze. So not conducive to boating. Um, the boat's actually in a slip in Pittsburgh, California, down just north of San, uh, San Francisco. And uh, we, we keep it in there so we can go go visit it 
on the weekends and <laughs> take it out. Yeah. So when are you going to take, take your favorite uh, podcast out? Any time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually have long-term goals of buying a, a 48 to 52 or three foot, um, basically a motor yacht. It sounds pretentious to say that, but like an older one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, when you look at it, uh, we've been talking about it quite a bit and I can work remotely right now. I can work from anywhere with an internet connection and a computer. And, um, my wife can't quite do that yet, but when she can, uh, which we're sort of working towards. I mean, we paid $261,000 for the house I'm sitting in right now. I can get a boat for half of that that we can live on and, uh, you know, just take it around the world. So that's kind of the, kind of the long-term goal boat wise. That sounds awesome <laughs> to be real. Uh, but, uh, I, I was going to say, and just for the record, whoever's listening, uh, we, Chris didn't like make us talk to him on this <laughs> podcast at all. Like we kind of invited him on. So keep that with a grain of salt. But I just wanted to say like on behalf of Carlton and Connor and I, like we really, really appreciate everything you've been doing for us and everything you've been doing for the APN. Uh, Carlton, do you have? Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't express enough. Like the only reason this pot, this podcast is even possible is because the amount of work that you do. And we know it's, 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 it's fucking a lot, it's especially for us three. Yeah. <laughs> And then you have 11 other show, 10 other shows that you do on top of that, while also being a husband, while also having a personal life, while also having a career. I don't know how the fuck you do it, but like good on you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe get that the uh, haggis eater across the pond to <laughs> us, do more of the grunt work. And uh, as yeah. a theme that you know in this podcast is we usually ask at the end, you know, would you you choose to live life as an archaeologist? Um, I think we're going to change it this time. Um, would you choose to open a, park, a podcast network with a bunch of archaeologists again if you had the choice? <laughs> yes, I would. Absolutely. I would do it very differently given the knowledge that I have now. If, uh, if that haggis eater ever pushes me out, I'll start a new network <laughs> and it'll be bigger and better. So, I can see it. All right. On that note, um, we just interviewed Chris Webster, the co-founder of the APN and a godsend for dealing with our shit. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. I usually write my own jokes, just to be fair, but I stole this one from the internet. So, and you can tell by the quality of my jokes that I write them because they're shitty. So, boys, uh, why should you never go into an, get into an argument with a dictionary? Why? <laughs> because they'll always have the last word. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> that's because Chris's last name is Webster. It's a Webster. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. right. That was good. <laughs> I'm being topical, okay? I'm being topical. Oh shit! What do you call a uh, a, a rapper from Lake Turkana? Oh Jesus Christ! Turkana. <laughs> 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 This 
show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.